Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 286 for August 22nd, 2022. DEFCON 30 was a raging success. I had a great time. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Very different from the previous year. DEFCON 29 was kind of a DEFCON light, just coming out of COVID. It was, I don't know how many people they had, maybe 10,000, whereas pre-COVID, it was like 30,000. Well, this year, they were back to 25,000 or so, so it's getting right back to where it was. So it was pretty darn crowded. Um, so it was different in that regard. But uh, I had a great time. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Also, I got to meet two, at least two of my patrons. That was that was great. Finally meet some of these uh, folks in real life. We had some drinks together and talked quite a while. Uh, we actually had a great time. And so big thanks to my patrons for coming out and saying hi. And I uh, got to actually honor my challenge coin for the first time uh, in, in person for all the times they've been out there. Uh, uh, this has been the first time someone was able to actually take me up on that offer. So that was great. And it was, as much as I like talking on Discord, there's just nothing beats being in person. So really great to meet a couple of my patrons out at DEF CON. The Amulet of Entropy, my indie badge that I made with Joe from HackerBoxes.com was a huge hit. Uh, Joe sold out of all the units that he bought to the con. It There's still a few online. He had a few left over that he didn't bring with him that, you know, he was bringing like lots of these things in boxes. And so odd ones were kind of left behind. There's a few odd ones left. So if you missed it, you still have a chance to get one. Uh, there's a link in the show notes or you just go to HackerBoxes.com and look for box number 80 uh, and you'll find the Amulet of Entropy. I saw a lot of people wearing it. I uh, stopped a few of them and say, you know, hey, I like your badge. Uh, I designed it. And we had some fun conversations around that. That was great. So if that were, if you were one of those people, it was great to meet you. Uh, thanks for getting the badge and showing it off. I saw some people with some great mods. Uh, you know, the software has been published so people can make their own modifications. And some did. That was great. My talk at the Crypto and Privacy Village also went well around harvesting entropy, capturing chaos. I would guess there were maybe 60 or 70 attendees. Uh, again, I've given some public speeches before, uh, kind of seminars and, and classes and things, but this is kind of like my first real convention tech talk. So that was a bucket list item for me and what a great place to do it at DEF CON. So that was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to the video for that. They said they're going to make it available. I think it'll be publicly available. Uh, and if so, I will certainly let you know and, and, and send you a link for that. My interview with Jeff Moss was so much fun. He had some incredibly funny stories. And uh, we talked a lot about this being the big 3.0. We had a lot of nostalgia in the air. So I asked him, you know, how it got started, what it was like back in the old days, how it's changed, some of his favorite memories. And one of the stories in particular that he told is just unbelievable. Uh, and you will get all of that goodness next week. So stay tuned for that. So before we get into the new show this week, a couple quick security notes. I could read you articles about these, but I'll just tell you to update. The Zoom app for Macintosh, if you use the app uh, on a Mac, you definitely want to get that updated. There was a pretty nasty bug that just got fixed, so make sure you've got the latest version of Zoom on your Mac. And speaking of uh, Apple, uh, all of their devices, their uh, your iPhone, your iPad, your Macintosh computers, laptops, etc., uh, there's also an important security update for those as well, so make sure you get those installed. And generally speaking, you want to turn on software updates automatically anyway. So uh, just that you get these things as soon as they're available. Uh, whenever there's these kind of a security updates, you want to get those installed right away. So uh, look for the automatic settings on that update and check those boxes. All right, but we got a news show for you this week. Uh, some of these coming straight from DEF CON and Black Hat, the, what we affectionately call Hacker Summer Camp. Those two are coordinated so that they're back-to-back -back in Las Vegas every year. 
right around the same time. Uh, I didn't go to Black Hat at all this year. I, I dipped my toe in that pool a little bit last year just for fun because your DEF CON badge, I think, gives you a free floor pass, which I got there early enough to take advantage of last year. But this year, I didn't really have the time, so I didn't do it. But anyway, uh, so Black Hat and DEF CON, always, there's always stories associated with those every year, and I've got a couple of those for you this week. First of all, we're going to talk about some uh, some Mac apps that are spreading some malware, and, and you want to delete these apps. Uh, we're going to talk about how iOS VPNs aren't really as airtight as they should be, They're leaking some information, which is not good. TikTok has recently been called out for their in-app browser and some potentially nasty privacy implications for things that it can do. It's not obvious that they're doing them yet, but I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Cisco has confirmed a network breach. And while it may not matter to you what goes on at Cisco, how this happened is something that we should all be uh, aware of. And so I thought it was a good case study for, for what not to do. Signal says that about 1900 users, phone numbers were exposed by a breach by another company called Twilio. And again, that's not a lot of people, but again, I think it's an important to understand what happened there and the implications of that. So I want to read you a story about that. There's been a new jailbreak for John Deere tractors. And we've talked about this on the show a couple of times. This all revolves around the right to repair movement. And I think this is something worth following. So uh, I'll, I'll explain what happened there. Amazon is no joke, actually apparently going to be releasing a reality TV show based on footage captured by their ring doorbells, kind of like America's Funniest Home Videos, but with surveillance. So <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll explain why that's bothering me. There was a report I saw about this new thing that schools apparently are using to track how long kids spend in the bathroom. Like when you get a hall pass, they now have, instead of those in the old days, you actually get like a piece of paper the teacher would give you that you carry around. That was your proof that you're allowed to be in the hallway between classes. Like, you know, I had to go to the restroom or whatever. Not anymore. Everything's got to be digital now. So now they have e hall passes. Uh, and of course, since they're electronic, they can get up to all sorts of other mischief, including tracking, which is pretty creepy. And then finally, Yet another reason why we have to be very careful with our biological material. Uh, the police have been using DNA from baby databases to investigate the father for a crime. And um, uh, we'll end up with that. And then we'll get to my tip of the week. So lots to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is just a short article. I want to read it really quickly in case you happen to have one of these apps installed. You should definitely uninstall them. This is from Tom's Guide. Although Apple devices are often thought of as being safer than PCs running Windows, they can become infected with malware after accidentally installing a malicious app. According to a new report from security researcher Alex Kleber, seven different Apple developer accounts, which were all managed by the same Chinese developer, have been secretly distributing malware via the Mac App Store. While the malware inside these apps isn't active at first, once installed on a user's device, they receive commands from a command and control or CNC server that enables the malware. This allows the apps to bypass Apple's security checks and remain on the Mac App Store. Interestingly enough, the developer of these malicious apps is able to alter their user interface remotely. As such, Apple's review team sees a completely different user interface when inspecting them according to TechSpot. Below, you'll find a list of all the malicious Mac apps, and I'm going to read this in a second, in question with their developers. Although some of these have been already been removed from the Mac App Store by Apple, they can still be dangerous if left installed on your devices, which is why you should delete them immediately. 
And here are the apps in case you happen to have these on your Mac. PDF Reader for Adobe PDF Files by Sunnet Technology. And then all the rest of these are by a company called Team Identifier. Word Writer Pro, Screen Recorder, Webcam Expert, Streaming Browser Video Player, PDF Editor for Adobe Files, and PDF Reader. So again, if you've got those apps and they're by that maker, either Team Identifier or Sunnet Technology, you're going to want to delete those ASAP. The article goes on. It says, any application you download and install on Apple devices has the potential to be malicious. Even with the iPhone maker's stringent security, bad apps manage to slip through the cracks from time to time. This is why you should always carefully examine the rating of any app you want to install, as well as take a look at its reviews. Although an app has a high rating and lots of positive reviews, they could be fake. So look for similar language, poor grammar, and other signs that an app's reviews may not be genuine. So beyond the fact that these apps are bad, and if you have them, you should uninstall them. I just wanted to call attention again to the fact that these app stores are certainly better than nothing. Uh, these guys, Apple, Google, Microsoft, have app stores so that they can try to vet this software. Uh, also so that if they find that an application is bad and it slipped through the cracks, they can revoke its license and uh, you, nobody else can download it again. And uh, what they really ought to do is send you some sort of a warning that, hey, you should delete this app. I'm surprised they don't do that. Uh, but they should. So what this article is basically telling you is if you already have these installed, you still do need to uninstall them. But it's important to note that these app stores aren't perfect. Things will get through. I mean, there's millions of apps and, and they can't personally inspect each and every one of these. They've got automated tools that try to look for suspicious activity and suspicious code. And, you know, there's probably a spot checks done by humans from here and there. It's really interesting in this case that this application was actually built to avoid that. This application looks different <laughs> in certain circumstances so that it can kind of fly under the radar. This is kind of similar to what VW has caught doing years ago with its emission standards, where the cars would actually perform differently to meet emissions pollution emissions specifications when on a test rig. The car was smart enough to figure out that it was on a test rig and would toe the line and do what it's supposed to do. But in the real world, it, would, it wouldn't so that it had to have better performance or whatever it, you know, they wanted the car to do that, that meeting the regulations would not allow them to do. In this case, it's malicious software that is figured out that it's being tested or looked at by a security researcher in some cases, or in this case, by the app store maybe the test programs, and it behaves nicely in the test rig. Uh, and then when it gets out in the real world, it starts being malicious. So these app stores are much better than nothing. They're a definite good step, but they are not a panacea. All right, moving on. This is from Ars Technica. It's about iOS VPNs leaking information. A security researcher said that Apple's iOS devices don't fully route all network traffic through VPNs as a user might expect, a potential security issue the device maker has known about for years. Michael Horowitz, a longtime computer security blogger and researcher, puts it plainly, if contentiously, in a continually updated blog post. And this is a quote from Michael. It says, quote, VPNs on IS are broken, unquote. Any third-party VPN seems to work at first, giving the device a new IP address, DNS servers, and a tunnel for new traffic, Horowitz writes. But sessions and connections established before a VPN is activated do not terminate. And in Horowitz's findings with advanced router logging, can still send data outside the VPN tunnel while it's active. In other words, you might expect a VPN client to kill existing connections before establishing a secure connection so they can be reestablished inside the VPN tunnel. But iOS VPNs can't seem to do this, Horowitz says, a finding that is backed up by similar report from May 2020. This is a quote from uh, Horowitz, quote, Data leaves the iOS device outside of the VPN tunnel. This is not a classic legacy DNS leak. It's a data leak. 
I confirmed this using multiple types of VPN and software from multiple VPN vendors. The latest version of iOS that I tested this with is 15.6, unquote. And we're currently on 15.6.1, which has that fix I just talked to you about that you need to download. So this was fairly recent. Privacy company Proton previously reported on an iOS VPN bypass vulnerability that started at least in iOS 13.3.3. Like Horowitz's post, Proton VPN's blog noted that a VPN typically closes all existing connections and reopens them inside a VPN tunnel, but that didn't happen on iOS. Most existing connections will eventually end up inside the tunnel, but some, like Apple's push notification service, can last for hours. The primary issue with non-tunneled connections persisting is that they could be unencrypted and that the IP address of the user and what they're connecting to can be seen by ISPs and other parties. And this is a quote from Proton. They say, quote, those at highest risk because of this insecurity flaw are people in countries where surveillance and civil rights abuses are common, unquote. That might not be pressing concern for typical VPN users, but it's notable. Proton VPN had suggested a workaround that was, quote unquote, almost as effective as manually closing all connections when starting a VPN. And that is connect to a VPN server, turn on airplane mode, and then turn it off. And this is another quote from Proton. They say, quote, your other connections should also reconnect inside the VPN tunnel, though we cannot guarantee this 100%, unquote. Horowitz suggests that iOS airplane mode functions are so confusing as to make this a non-answer. Okay, so this article brings up a lot of things. I didn't read the whole article if you want to. I've always, you know, there's a link in the show notes. But basically what this is saying is when I create a VPN, the whole point of the VPN is that I want all my network traffic, all the data coming to and from my device needs to go through that VPN tunnel. That's the whole point. I don't want anybody along the path like my ISP or McDonald's or Starbucks or the airport or whoever's providing me Wi-Fi right now. I don't want them to be able to see, you know, the traffic, what's what's inside the tunnel. But what this is saying is, and I find it hard to believe that Apple hasn't fixed this, is that all these apps you already have running that are already have connections created those connections don't get put inside the VPN tunnel after you start the VPN. So let's say I've been using my phone for a couple hours or, or whatever, and all the apps I normally have running are running, and they're doing their connections, checking for updates, downloading new content for Twitter or whatever. They've already got connections being made to the internet behind the scenes. And I say, well, I, I, I'm about to go into a public Wi-Fi, let's say, and I want to go on a VPN. So I start my VPN. Well, all the traffic from then on if you launch a new app or if an app creates a new connection, that will be in the VPN. But everything that's already been running, all the connections already been made are not. And that's that's just not cool. So what the, the solution here is what they're trying to do is just kind of cut off your internet access by going into airplane mode, cut all connections, and then go come out of airplane mode. And when all those connections are reestablished, hopefully they will all be reestablished within the VPN tunnel and you will have the privacy that you thought you had. All right, next up, this is from Forbes, and I'm going to warn you now that I, I don't like reading from Forbes. A lot of the articles in Forbes are not well researched or they're sometimes overhyped. This is kind of one of them, uh, so I'll give you some commentary about this uh, after the, I read the article. But I think it is important to understand that these sorts of things are possible, so I, I wanted to draw this to your attention. And this is about TikTok. When TikTok users enter a website through a link on the app, TikTok inserts code that can monitor much of their activity on those outside websites, including their keystrokes and whatever they tap on the page, according to a new research shared with Forbes. The tracking would also make it possible for TikTok to capture a user's credit card information or password. 
TikTok has the ability to monitor that activity because of modifications it makes to websites using the company's in-app browser, which is part of the app itself. When people tap on a TikTok ad or visit links on a creator's profile, the app doesn't open the page with normal browsers like Safari or Chrome. Instead, it defaults to a TikTok-made in-app browser that can rewrite parts of web pages. TikTok can track this activity by injecting lines of the programming language JavaScript into the websites visited within the app, creating new commands that alert TikTok to what people are doing in those sites. This is a quote from Felix Krauss, a software researcher in Vienna, who published this report. And Felix says, quote, This was an active choice the company made. This is a non-trivial engineering task. This does not happen by mistake or randomly, unquote. TikTok strongly pushed back at the idea that it's tracking users in its in-app browser. The company confirmed those features exist in the code, but said TikTok is not using them. The company said that the JavaScript code is part of a third-party software development kit, or SDK, a set of tools used to build or maintain apps. The SDK includes features the app does not use, the company said. TikTok did not answer questions about the SDK or what third-party makes it. While Krauss's research reveals the code, companies including TikTok and Facebook parent Meta are injecting into websites from their native in-app browsers, the research does not show that these companies are actually using that code to collect data, send it to their servers, or share it with third parties. Nor does the tool reveal if any of the activity is tied to a user's identity or profile. Even though Krauss was able to identify a few specific examples of what the apps can track, like TikTok's ability to monitor keystrokes, he said his list isn't exhaustive and the companies could be monitoring more. Krauss on Thursday also released a tool that lets people check if the browser they are using injects any new code into websites and what activity the company might be monitoring. To use the tool to check Instagram's browser, for example, send the link inappbrowser.com to a friend in a direct message or have a friend DM you the link. If you click on the link in the DM, the tool will give you a rundown of what the app is potentially tracking, though the tool uses several development terms and may be difficult to decipher for non-coders. For his new research, Krauss Krauss tested seven iPhone apps that use in-app browsers, TikTok, Facebook, Facebook Messenger, Instagram, Snapchat, Amazon, and Robinhood. Uh, It does note that he did not test the versions for Android. Of the seven apps Krauss tested, TikTok is the only one that appears to monitor keystrokes, he said, and seemed to be monitoring more activity than the rest. Like TikTok, Instagram and Facebook both track every tap on a website. Those two apps also monitor when people highlight text on the websites. All right, so this article goes on. So a couple things here. First of all, yeah, this is a potential problem. Uh, I don't think, like, and he says he, he hasn't proven that these things are being done, just that they could be done. And so what I want you to understand is that these apps, when allowed to, and I think Apple may need to clamp down on this, can build an in-app browser so that when you click on links, you don't go to your default web browser on that you've chosen for the device. It goes to the browser built into the app. Now, these, on iOS, I'm pretty sure they require all browsers to be built off of Apple's WebKit. So in a sense, they're all the same browser. Because they control the in-app browser and they can they could do more things like they can insert extra JavaScript code into every website you visit if you use their browser, which I think Apple's got to fix this. So the article, again, this is Forbes and sometimes, you know, you probably you may have even seen this on the news. We don't know for sure that these things are actually being done. Also, a lot of times these things are done for not nefarious purposes. Like usually it's marketing stuff. Like I want to know how long did people spend on this website? What interested them? What did they click on? You know, where, where did they spend their time? Did they highlight some text? 
Now, when you start talking about recording keystrokes, that's that's getting pretty shady. Like, you know, any anything I enter into a form there should not be going to the app in which I clicked a link that took me to a browser. I should be yeah, that should be kept separate. But I want you to realize that this kind of thing is possible. We got to be really careful. Of course, it calls out TikTok in America. We really like to bash TikTok. It's from China, so it's really easy to kind of point the finger and say they're bad uh, because of where it comes from. But I mean, Facebook and Google and all these other companies could be doing the same thing. So uh, I, I hesitated a little bit to read this article, but I thought it was interesting just to point out that these sorts of things are possible. We need to be aware of these things. The other thing I think is cool is this guy's tool. I thought that was kind of cool. This website that he created called inappbrowser.com. That's the letter N-I-N-A-P-P browser.com. Uh, and that web page, apparently what it does is it probably has its own built-in code. And then it, it's smart enough to know hey, this this was not on the original website. Somebody inserted this and calls attention to it. So if you're interested in this from a very technical standpoint, you might want to give that tool a, a look and see if that if you find it interesting. All right, let's move on. And this is about something that happened to Cisco. Just going to read briefly, and then I'm going to tell you the, the, the moral of the story for the rest of us. This is from ThreatPost. Cisco Systems revealed details of a May hack by the Yanwang ransomware group that leveraged a compromised employee's Google account. The network giant is calling the attack a potential compromise in its Wednesday post by the company's own Cisco Talos threat research arm. Ultimately, Cisco Talos said the adversaries were not successful at deploying ransomware malware, however, were successful at penetrating its network and planting a cadre of offensive hacking tools and conducting internal network reconnaissance, quote, commonly observed leading up to the development of ransomware in victim environments, unquote. The crux of the attack was the attacker's ability to compromise the targeted employee's Cisco VPN utility and access the corporate network using that VPN software. And this is a quote from Cisco. They say, quote, initial access to the Cisco VPN was achieved via the successful compromise of a Cisco employee's personal Google account. The user had enabled password syncing via Google Chrome and had stored their Cisco credentials in their browser, enabling that information to synchronize to their Google account, unquote. With credentials in their possession, attackers then used a multitude of techniques to bypass the multi-factor authentication tied to the VPN account. Efforts included voice phishing and a type of attack called MFA fatigue. Cisco Talos describes the MFA fatigue attack technique as, quote, the process of sending a high volume of push requests to the target's mobile device until the user accepts either accidentally or simply to attempt to silence the repeated push notifications they are receiving, unquote. The MFA spoofing attacks leveraged against Cisco employee were ultimately successful and allowed the attackers to run the VPN software as the targeted Cisco employee. And then one final quote from the report from Cisco, it says, quote, once the attacker had obtained initial access, they enrolled a series of new devices for MFA and authenticated successfully to the Cisco VPN, unquote. All right, so let me back that up and paraphrase some of this. So what basically happened is this Cisco employee was using the Google Chrome browser to save passwords, like a password manager, the built-in password manager for the Chrome browser, as opposed to a dedicated one like LastPass or 1Password or Bitwarden. They use the one built into the browser. The browser helpfully says, hey, would you like me to remember this password for you? And you say, sure. But so the browser now has this. So but unfortunately, it's now tied to this person's Google account. So in other words, if this, if, if they were able to, and this person was, if they were able to hack into the person's personal Google account, now they can log in as them. And guess what? They can synchronize all that person's passwords because it's part of their Google account. So they got a hold of the Cisco VPN password uh, credentials that this person had stored in their web browser. 
And then they went to these other techniques because, you know, Cisco's got defense in depth and has multi-factor authentication turned on. And they used other kind of social engineering techniques to get around the MFA part. And then they got into Cisco. And then once they were in Cisco, they were kind of, you know, they were in, they were in the building, so to speak. They, they were through the barriers and they could then get up to all sorts of other mischief acting as this user using their account. So a couple things for you, for the listener, <laughs> the take, a couple takeaways. First of all, don't use your browser's password manager. Use a dedicated password manager. Browsers, you know, have a lot of things to do and password managers have one. <laughs> Browsers are just not the most secure places to, to keep your passwords. So you should definitely move your passwords over to a password manager and stop using your browser to save passwords. Second, multi-factor authentication is great, but it, it can be worked around and social engineering is one way to do that. These guys figured out a way to basically slam this person with requests for MFA codes or, or, or links that allowed them to get the MFA codes until they finally just gave in and did it. MFA fatigue. But a more common way to do this is actually to do a SIM jack where you copy someone's SIM card, make a clone of their cell phone. And if it's a text-based, SMS-based uh, MFA code that you get, now they get that code too. So the bad guys are smart too. Uh, we put these barriers up and they figure out ways around them. That's not an argument for not doing them, just an argument for making sure that we do them correctly. All right, next up, this is from TechCrunch, uh, and this is about Signal. End-to-end -end encrypted messaging app Signal says attackers accessed the phone numbers and SMS verification codes for almost 2,000 users as part of a breach at communications giant Twilio last week. Twilio, which provides phone number verification services to Signal, said on August 8th that malicious actors accessed the data of 125 customers after successfully phishing multiple employees. Twilio did not say who the customers were, but they are likely to include large organizations after Signal on Monday confirmed that it was one of the victims. Signal said in a blog post Monday that it would notify about 1,900 users whose phone numbers or SMS verification codes were stolen when attackers gained access to Twilio's customer support console. And this is a quote from Signal, quote, For about 1,900 users, an attacker could have attempted to re-register their number to another device or learn that their number was registered to Signal. Among the 1,900 phone numbers, the attacker explicitly searched for three numbers, and, we and we've received a report from one of those three users that their account was re-registered, unquote. While this didn't give the attacker access to message history, which Signal doesn't store, or contact lists and profile information, which is protected by the user's security pin, Signal said, quote, in the case that an attacker was able to re-register an account, they could send and receive Signal messages from that phone number, unquote. And for those of you who don't know, the Signal messaging app is tied to your phone number. There's a ways around that, but generally speaking, that's how they do it. For those affected, the company says it will unregister Signal on all devices that the user is currently using, or that an attacker registered them to and will require users to re-register Signal with their phone number on their preferred device. Signal also advises users to switch on Registration Lock, a feature which prevents an account from being re-registered on another device without the user's security pin. Although the Twilio breach impacts a fraction of Signal's 40 million plus users, users have long bemoaned how Signal, considered one of the most secure messaging apps, requires users to register a phone number to create an account. Other end-to-end -end encryption apps, such as Wire, allow users to sign up with a username. While Signal has slowly moved to end its reliance on phone numbers, such as with the introduction of Signal pins in 2020, this incident will likely reignite calls for it to move faster. So I recommend Signal all the time on this show. And so, you know, I, in fairness and full disclosure, I want to make sure I call out when there are problems. And I understand why Signal wanted to use phone numbers. It's, it's the easiest way to find other people on Signal. But 
I'm, yeah, I, I think that they're regretting that. We'll, we'll see. I know uh, they've defended that choice many times over the years, but I think it's time that the, you know, the, the, the move past the phone number thing to some other sort of a username that I can choose for privacy's sake. That's really the only bit of information that signal has on you is your phone number, but they don't, they really don't even need to have that. So we'll see if this incident causes them to shift, shift away from phone numbers. But Signal, by the way, is still the gold standard. I still highly recommend it. Don't let the story dissuade you from doing it. I, I highly recommend you use Signal. It's really the best way to go. All right, next up, this is from Ars Technica. Uh, and this is about John Deere tractors and their right to repair. Farmers around the world have turned to tractor hacking so they can bypass the digital locks that manufacturers impose on their vehicles. Like insolent pump looping and iPhone jailbreaking, this allows farmers to modify and repair the expensive equipment that's vital to their work the way they could with analog tractors. At the DEF CON security conference in Las Vegas on Saturday, the hacker known as Sick Codes is presenting a new jailbreak for John Deere and company tractors that allows him to take control of multiple models through their touchscreens. The finding underscores the security implications of the right to repair movement. The tractor exploitation that Sick Codes uncovered isn't a remote hack, but the vulnerabilities involved represent fundamental insecurities in the devices that could be exploited by malicious actors or potentially chained with other vulnerabilities. Securing the agriculture industry and food supply chain is crucial, as incidents like the 2021 JBS meat ransomware attack have shown. At the same time, though, vulnerabilities like the ones that Sick Codes found help farmers do what they need to do with their own equipment. Sick Codes, an Australian who lives in Asia, presented at DEF CON in 2021 about tractor application programming interfaces and uh, operating system bugs. After he made his research public, tractor companies like John Deere started fixing some of those flaws. And this is a quote uh, that he gave to Wired maybe back at the time, quote, The right to repair side was a little bit opposed to what I was trying to do. I heard from some, some, I heard from some farmers. One guy emailed me and was like, you're effing up all of our stuff. So I figured I would put my money where my mouth is and actually prove to farmers that they can root the devices, unquote. And by root, that means jailbreak or get through these um, programming locks that are put on by John Deere. This year, Sick Code said that while he is primarily concerned about world food security and the exposure that comes from vulnerable farming equipment, he also sees important value in, tell in letting farmers fully control their own equipment. Liberate the tractors, he says. After years of controversy in the U.S. over the right to repair the equipment, the equipment one purchases, the movement seems to have reached a turning point. The White House issued an executive order last year directing the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to increase enforcement efforts over practices like voiding warranties for outside repair. That, combined with New York State passing its own right to repair law and creative activist pressure, has generated unprecedented momentum for the movement. Facing mounting pressure, John Deere announced in March that it would make more of its repair software available to equipment owners. The company also said at the time that it will release a, an enhanced customer solution next year so customers and mechanics can download and apply official software updates for John Deere equipment themselves rather than having John Deere unilaterally apply the patches remotely or force farmers to bring products to an authorized dealership. So this was something that came out of DEF CON. So that was one reason I wanted to highlight it. I also want to just bring this issue back up, the right to repair in particular. I mean, these these tractors cost, I don't even know, probably it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're not cheap. And basically John Deere is holding them hostage uh, because they basically retained full control over these devices even after they're purchased. So when things go wrong, the farmers who, you know, in the old days used to be able to repair their own equipment, that you know, they, they bought it, why not repair it? You know, it's their livelihood are losing control over this because more and more of these big time 
tractors are filled with computers. And so John Deere has taken, you know, like the copyright laws and the things that allow them to put digital rights management DRM on these devices and basically allow them to maintain control of these things and prevent people from doing what they need to do. So anyway, uh, they need to figure this out. I understand security. That's great. But they're, you know, people, after you buy something, you should be able to do with it what you want. All right. Next up, this is about, uh, I got a couple articles here from Vice. This one's about another crazy story about Amazon's ring doorbell footage. Amazon's propaganda campaign to normalize surveillance is about to hit a higher gear. Wanda Sykes is going to host a new show featuring videos taken from ring surveillance cameras deadline reported on Thursday. It will be called ring nation. The show is being produced by MGM television, which is owned by Amazon and big fish entertainment, which ran another dystopian reality show, a piece of propaganda called live PD, which centered on commentary of police footage. According to Deadline, the show will feature lighthearted viral content captured on ring cameras, such as, quote, neighbors saving neighbors, marriage proposals, military reunions and silly animals, unquote. These types of videos frequently go viral online, but hardly represent the reality of what ring is used for. Besides home surveillance, Ring is a source of surveillance video for police departments in the U.S. and abroad. Amazon has done a lot of work to turn the U.S. into a ring nation off camera. Ring's surveillance cameras and surveillance network have been aggressively rolled out by Amazon, mainly by cultivating fear in suburbs about crime and by entering partnerships with, po with the police departments to give them unfettered access to, to surveillance footage. Last year, advocacy groups pushed on Amazon's Ring to be banned entirely by the Federal Trade Commission over concerns its facial recognition technology could fuel criminalization of black and brown people in public spaces. It's unsurprising, then, that Ring Nation would come from the production company that produced Live PD. As Adrian Horton writes for The Guardian, quote, Think NFL Red Zone, but for arrests of people not given the chance to sign release forms because the show bills itself as live news, unquote. Amazon isn't alone in this fight to cultivate an ever-growing surveillance apparatus. Most of Silicon Valley is intimately involved in surveillance and the potential profits to be had by offering surveillance tools, analytics, computational infrastructure, and a host of other goods and services rooted in watching people. Still, Amazon's ring and attempts to normalize it hearken an odious development. One peek into this came back in February when a bizarre TikTok trend went viral where ring surveillance cameras owners made Amazon delivery workers dance for them. At this point, it's hard to defend ownership of a Ring camera. Using fear-mongering about package theft and suburban crime, a surveillance company has convinced countless homes to affix a surveillance network node that police departments and one of the world's largest monopolies will use for, for their benefit. And now they want us to laugh about it all in our ideally Ring-surveilled homes. Wow, yeah, so <laughs> I've complained about this for a long time. I'm sure you know where I'm coming from on this. But yeah, I do kind of feel like this is an attempt to normalize the use of this technology. And if let's say this becomes popular, I'm sure it will sell a lot more ring doorbell cameras. Like think back to America's Funniest Home Videos when that was the thing. I mean, how many people went out and bought home camcorders after watching that show? I bet a lot. I understand the need for this. I have a video camera myself, a video doorbell camera myself. Now it's not ring. It's made by Eufy. Uh, so I have full control over that video and cops can't come looking through my thing without my permission. Actually, they can't at all. And I understand, I, I find that valuable. I love being able to answer my door from anywhere on the planet. I like it when I'm stuck down in the basement and I'm comfortable and somebody rings my doorbell and I can see who it is and decide if I even want to answer. And if I do, I can talk to them and often not even have to get out of my chair. I, 
I find that extremely convenient and valuable. I also sometimes can use it to see if there's a package sitting on my doorstep when I'm away from home. I like that too. I can see when packages are delivered. That's very convenient. But we've got to be really careful about these things. And the way Amazon's been doing it, especially with all the partnerships with, with police departments, and this article's right, they've been, they've been kind of drumming up fear, FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, trying to drive people to buy these security products to get more ring video doorbells out there and other ring security cameras. They make all sorts of security cameras and it's just building toward a kind of a scary dystopia. And we, we need regulations around this stuff. We've got to put some limits on what, on what could be done with these things before. Well, it's already out of hand. So it's a little after the fact, but it still needs to be done. All right. Another article here from vice, and this is about yet another new modern surveillance device. E-Hall Pass, a digital system that students have to use to request to leave their classroom and which takes a note of how long they've been away, including visits to the bathroom, has spread into at least a thousand schools around the United States. The system has some resemblance to the sort of worker monitoring carried out by Amazon, which tracks how long its staffs go to the toilet for and is used to penalize workers for, quote, time off task, unquote. It also highlights how automated tools have led to increased surveillance of students in schools and employees in places of work. On Monday, a since-deleted tweet went viral in which someone claimed that their school was preparing to introduce e-hall pass and described it as, quote, the program where we track how long, at what time, and how often each child goes to the restroom and store that information on third-party servers run by a private for-profit company, unquote. Motherboard then identified multiple schools across the U.S. that appear to be using the technology by searching the web for instruction manuals, announcements, and similar documents from schools that mention the technology. And by the way, this article mentions half a dozen schools. If you're curious, if you're one of them, you can look up the article, but I figured it was a small number and I just left it out of my my talking about it here. Eduspire, the company that makes eHall Pass, told trade publication Ed Surge in March that 1,000 schools use the system. The system itself works as a piece of software installed on a computer or mobile device. Students request a pass through the software and the teacher then approves it. The tool promises, quote unquote, hall omniscience, with the ability to, quote, always know who has a pass and who doesn't without asking the student, unquote, according to the product's website. Admins can then access data collected through the software and view a live dashboard showing details of all passes. eHall Pass can also stop meetups of certain students and limit the amount of passes going to certain locations, the website adds, explicitly mentioning, quote, vandalism and TikTok challenges, unquote. Many of the schools Motherboard identified appear to use eHall Pass specifically on Chromebooks, according to student user guides and similar documents hosted on the school's websites, though it also advertises that it can be used to track students on their personal cell phones. I don't think there's a whole lot I have to add to that story. I think you understand how creepy that is. I understand the convenience of this. I understand, again, these tools are cool in the sense that they give you lots of interesting data and you know maybe make things simpler, but... Oh God, we've got, we've just got to stop doing this surveillance based stuff and, and realize that unlike the old days with hall passes, even if you kept a logbook of who, you know, of who took it and when and how long they had it for, that's still all local data that maybe only the teacher has, or maybe the school has. But if you're using these third-party programs, this is data collected by who knows who and sold off to someone else. Probably, oh, it's just, just drives me nuts. All right, last article, and then we'll get to my tip of the week. Uh, And this is from Wired Magazine. And this is something even I wasn't aware of, so it kind of blows my mind. And again, like most of these, this this is part of a much larger article. So if you're interested, just 
go to the show notes and you can click and read the whole thing. If you were born in the United States within the last 50 years or so, chances are good that one of the first things you did as a baby was give a DNA sample to the government. By the 1970s, states had established newborn screening programs in which a nurse takes a few drops of blood from a pinprick on the baby's heel and then sends the sample to a lab to test for certain diseases. Over the years, the list has grown from just a few conditions to dozens. The blood is supposed to be used for medical purposes. These screenings identify babies with serious health issues, and they have been highly successful at reducing death and disability among children. But a public records lawsuit filed last month in New Jersey suggests that these samples are also being used by police in criminal investigations. The lawsuit, filed by the state's Office of the Public Defender and the New Jersey Monitor, a nonprofit news outlet, alleges that state police sought a newborn's blood sample from the New Jersey Par- Department of Health to investigate the child's father in connection with a sexual assault from the 1990s. Crystal Grant, a technology fellow at the American Civil Liberties Union, says the case represents a, quote, whole new leap forward, unquote, in the misuse of DNA by law enforcement. Uh, She goes on to say, quote, it means that essentially every baby born in the U.S. could be included in the police surveillance, unquote. It's not known how many agencies around the country have sought to use newborn screening samples to investigate crimes or how often these attempts were successful. But there is at least one other instance of it happening. In December 2020, a local TV station reported that a police in California had issued five search warrants to access such samples and that at least one cold case there was solved with the help of newborn blood. Privacy activists have also raised alarms about what they see as similar misuses of other kinds of DNA collection. And in a recent case, uh, police in San Francisco used a sample collected during a woman's rape exam to tie her to an unrelated property crime years later. Chisa Boudin, who was then the city's district attorney, called the use of this woman's DNA a violation of her Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable searches and seizures and ultimately dropped the charges. The New Jersey lawsuit alleges that police obtained the blood sample of a newborn child who is now elementary school aged to perform a DNA analysis that linked the baby's father to a crime. This was done using a technique called investigative genetic genealogy or forensic genealogy. It usually involves isolating DNA left at a crime scene and using it to create a digital genetic profile of a subject. Investigators can upload this profile to genealogy websites where other people have freely shared their own DNA information in the hope of connecting with family members or learning about their ancestry. Because DNA is shared within families, investigators can use relative matches to map out a suspect's family tree and narrow down their identity. According to the New Jersey lawsuit, police had reopened an investigation into a cold case and had used genetics to place the suspect within a single family, one of several adults or their children. But the police didn't yet have probable cause to obtain search warrants for DNA swabs for any of them. Instead, they asked the state's newborn screening lab for a blood sample of one of the children. Analysis of this genetic information revealed a close relationship between the baby's DNA and the DNA taken at the crime scene, indicating that the baby's father was the person the police were seeking. That was enough to establish probable cause in the assault investigation, so police sought a warrant for a cheek swab from the father. After analyzing his DNA, the suit contends, police found that it was a match to the crime scene DNA. Jennifer Saletti, an attorney with the Office of New Jersey Public Defender, which is representing the father, says combining newborn screening samples with genetic genealogy opens the door for virtually anyone's DNA to be used in a, crim- in a criminal investigation. And this is a quote from her. She says, quote, this is like a dystopian onion. Every time we peel back another layer, we find some new violation of privacy, unquote. 
Because there are no federal laws governing newborn screening programs, states set their own policies on which diseases they test for, how long samples are stored, and how they can be used. Some states hold onto blood samples for months, others for years or decades. Virginia only keeps samples from infants with normal results for six months, while Michigan retains them for up to 100 years. New Jersey stores samples for 23 years before destroying them. These screenings are mandatory in the U.S. Parents don't have to provide consent, although they may opt out on religious grounds. Newborn blood samples can also be used for biomedical research, and only a handful of states require parental consent for those research purposes. Saletti says parents deserve to know how their children's DNA is being stored and shared and for how long. So just another case where <sighs> DNA is being used for purposes it was generally intended to be used for and why we really, really, really have to be careful where we give our DNA. But also in, in this case, there are, there are GEDCOM databases, things where you can upload your genetic material for public use, which I mean, just don't do. I mean, I don't know. We, again, regulations would help here, but we also need to be careful what we do. But obviously in this case, as this article just said, you know, unless you can come up with some religious grounds to object to this, it's going to happen. And your baby's DNA is going to be captured and it will be in some database somewhere for who knows how long and shared with who knows who. All right. So now it's time for my tip of the week. And it has nothing to do with any of the articles this week. And as usual, this is also the subject of my latest blog entry and newsletter. So um, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already seen this. But I wanted to do some more, you know, basic kind of security one-on-one stuff and some great tips and tricks that I think are really useful that people maybe aren't doing. And this one is about using the guest network on your home Wi-Fi. It's really a valuable thing. So first of all, obviously for guests, right? When you have people coming into your home that don't normally live there, whether they're close family or friends or just somebody stopping by and they say, hey, you know, do you mind if I get on your Wi-Fi? Do you mind if I use your internet? Can I get on your Wi-Fi connection? You need to put them on the guest network. Most modern Wi-Fi routers come with this feature and the guest network is an entirely separate segregated network uh, that still has full access to the internet and anything on that guest network can talk to anything else on that guest network, but it can't crucially talk to or communicate with or inspect or try to infect any of the devices on your regular home network. So this is a security mechanism we call compartmentalization. And it throws up a wall between these things, meaning that if we kind of keep the things we don't trust on one side away from the stuff that we really care about on the other side. Uh, one analogy to this might be if you're going to the doctor's office at this, whenever I did this with my kids and I took them to the pediatrician's office, there was always two areas for waiting kids in the, in the waiting area. There was, there was the regular area and then there was a sick kid area. So if your kid was sick or potentially sick or potentially contagious in particular, they would sit apart. Uh, and so they would not infect the kids that were there just for a checkup or something, you know, a healthy well visit. That's a smart thing to do. <laughs> and, you know, the parents like that too, right? So th this is kind of similar in the fact that we want to put things on the guest network that we don't necessarily trust. This isn't about not trusting the people, right? I mean, you may fully trust the person walking in the door with the laptop or the e-reader or the smartphone or something that was to get on your network, but their devices, do you know where they've been? Do they know where they've been? Do they know for a fact that the, the devices aren't running malware of some sort, aren't compromised in some way, aren't vulnerable in some way? Probably not. So it's just safer to put them on the guest network. It doesn't cause them any harm. I mean, it's not like they need to access stuff on your network. They just want to get to the internet, right? Without using their cell, cell phone data plan. So it gives them everything they need, but it keeps them separate and just keeps things safer. 
And the other reason you would want to use a guest network and something that we should all be doing if we can is putting our IoT devices on the guest network. Keep them separate from the network where our computers and smartphones are, the things that have data that we really care about, the things that we don't want to be hacked. Because once you invite something into your home and into your home network in this case, they have direct access to everything else on that network. And if they are malicious or they're compromised or they have a vulnerability that eventually gets compromised, they're a mole. They're, they're now inside the network and inside your defenses, and they can get up no good and try to infect other things in your home. And IoT devices are notoriously cheap and bad with security. Their profit margins are, are very, very small. A lot of these devices are super, super cheap, and security is an afterthought if it's a thought at all. Uh, and so these are kind of dangerous devices, and you want to segregate them from your kind of juicy stuff. So as long as your Internet of Things device, be it a streaming device, a webcam, your smart fridge, your smart toaster, smart lights, smart plugs, all these quote unquote smart devices that aren't really always as smart as they should be, at least in terms of security, if they only need to talk to the Internet or maybe if they only need to talk to the Internet and each other, like maybe you've got a, a bunch of lights that want to talk to each other to coordinate something, for example, uh, or you've got multiple streaming devices in the house, and but they, they talk to each other for some reason. If you put them all on the guest network, they can still do that. And then, of course, they can still talk to the Internet, too. But crucially, if they are compromised in some way, they can't just spend their waking hours trying to find other vulnerable devices on your network or sniff out your network traffic and look for, you know, juicy information, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of things they can get up to if they are inside your network, if they get past your router, basically. Uh, there's a lot of mischief and malicious stuff they can get up to. So you don't want to trust that. So those are the two great uses for using your guest network. Almost all modern routers have it. You'll have to, to enable this. If it's not enabled by default, you'll have to log into the administrator portal on your Wi-Fi router. It's not as hard as it sounds. Uh, your Wi-Fi router, like everything on your network, has got its own IP address. If you need to find out that IP address, and if you type that IP address into any browser that's connected to a device on that network, it should take you to the login page for your router. If you don't know what that IP address is, there are several ways to figure that out. Uh, my article on firewallsdon'tstepdragons.com has links to some helpful tips on how to do that. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it tends to be different per router. Uh, every router manufacturer does things slightly differently. And then the other thing, reason you'll need to look up your make and model of your router probably is you'll, you might need to get your uh, instruction manual because there's probably a default password for your admin or admin portal. Now, all of this information quite possibly is on a sticker on the back of your device. So if you just go find your Wi-Fi router, it's that thing with antennas on it probably. Uh, there should be a sticker on there with the IP address and, and default password. Now, if you happen to have a device that's a combo modem Wi-Fi router that you got from your internet service provider, they probably don't give you access to that, which is one reason why you would like to have your own router so you have full control over these things. Uh, but if you do have your own router, then look on the router itself. There's probably a little sticker on there that might tell you what the default IP address is and the default password so you can log into the admin portal. Once you log into the admin portal, the first thing you should do if you have not done this already is change that administrator password. If there's some well-known default password, uh, you should change it to something else and save that in your password manager. But then you need to find the guest network feature on that router, which again, every manufacturer does it slightly differently. So the manual, if you can download the manual for this or find it online, that will help you. Find where you configure the guest network for your Wi-Fi router and turn that on. Give it a nice name, maybe not something that identifies you, but you know, some you know cheeky name or something that's easy. And then when somebody comes over, you give them the credentials for the guest network. And you can even make that super simple. 
by creating a little Wi-Fi access QR code that they can scan with their phone, for example, uh, to get on the network quickly. They don't even have to enter anything. They just scan this code and that puts them on your Wi-Fi network. Again, my article, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. If you go to that article, it'll give you information on how to do that with some links for creating those QR codes. All right, so there you have it. There's your news and tip of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. Next week, we've got my big interview with DEF CON founder and CEO, Jeff Moss, a.k.a. The Dark Tangent. Uh, that was a fun, fun interview. It's the second time interviewing. He's such a great guy. I had such a good time talking to Jeff. Uh, so that interview will be posted next week. Uh, if you happen to be a patron of the show, you will get some extra behind-the-scenes content about my DEF CON trip. Uh, that will come after the interview next week. If you want to become a patron of the show, you will get access to all of this and more, including all the back episodes from the private podcast. Uh, just go to patreon.com and, and look up Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. There's a link in the show notes. And coming up this week uh, for my patrons, uh, I do a special one on the news uh, week for my higher patrons called Merlin's Musings. And we're going to, uh, I have some fun tips for you on using Git. Anyway, lots of great content for my patrons, lots of reason to become a patron. Even more than just the podcast, there's, there's more to it than that. You can access Discord and we can chat directly there. Uh, anyway, you'll find out if you go to patreon.com, you'll learn all about that. All right, so we got some great interviews in the works. By the way, there's only 14 episodes left. We were This is episode 286, so episode 300, the big 300, is coming up. It's hard to believe I've done 300 of these. Um, if all goes well, like on episode 100 and episode 200, I will be welcoming back world-renowned cryptographer and all-around cool guy, Bruce Schneier. I'm still working out the details on that, but I'm fingers crossed that will come together. But I've got some other great things and fun things planned for uh, the 300th episode to celebrate that milestone. So anyway, subscribe if you haven't. That way you won't miss a thing. If you get a chance, I would love to get some nice, fresh five-star reviews as they're always handy. Check out the book, check out the blog, check out the newsletter. Tell your friends and family, spread the word. All right, everybody, that's it for this week. Take care. As always, until next week, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Bye.